Well, in Jesus' name, you are dismissed. We can, you may have a seat. We could go home after that. The glorious, glorious truth of the gospel. Uh, if you don't have a sermon outline, please lift your hand, and these fine gentlemen will be glad to get you one. If you're joining us online, I really want to encourage you to go to our website and print out the notes um, so that you can listen um, and be able to follow along. Um, I want you to notice the title this morning as we come again to Micah, uh, Justice, Mercy, and Hope. I, I want us to recognize that our God reveals Himself in different ways. God as divine yet frustrated parent. God as divine yet frustrated parent. You say, why? Well, I've never really thought of God um, in that way. Um, as, a, you know, if a parent, a perfect parent rules over a thing, He would be the perfect parent that I'm not. Um, but I want you to see that He is the perfect parent that you're not, but yet He has so moved and so worked and entered into our condition so much that He is sometimes the frustrated parent. Now, that does not, I do not mean to imply anything along the lines that Scripture would not. Uh, I, I reject something called open theism, um, that God doesn't know what is coming up and God, doesn't, God is reacting to things. I, I would say that that is absolutely in every way false. The Scripture makes that very clear. But our God is a God that also has emotion. Our God is a God who enters into our circumstance, and He invests His heart with us. And some of you have never been taught this side of who God is. In fact, I, I know that there's some here this morning that this is all very new to you. In fact, even coming to a church that carries Bibles, um, that that's new to you. You grew up in a tradition, maybe you didn't go to church, or your church maybe certainly didn't depend upon bringing a Bible with you. And this morning, I want you to recognize this morning that bigger than any news that would come out of Washington bigger than any news that would come out of Hollywood or London or Paris, and I don't mean Hollywood, Florida, we don't usually make the news, but um, California, any news that would come from any of the world's centers of interest has nothing to compare with the news that we now look to here. This is the news that is eternal. The news that you're seeing on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or any of the other myriad of channels or the news that you see on Twitter feed ever, um, how interesting that's becoming. I want you to understand that that is so temporal and that is so passing in every way. And, and it's really who knows what the truth is anymore. We do not know those things. We have a guy in our church that makes t-shirts every now and then, and I said, hey, Parker, I think you ought to make a t-shirt that says this, 2020. I don't know. And on the back, put, and neither do you. <laughs> I, I think that would be a, a good t-shirt. That's one of the things that we see in our society, is this, this issue of who knows. And, and that we should not be surprised by, because the Scripture, both in Old Testament and New Testament, tell us that as the time draws nigh to the next age to come in God's grand plan, that truth will become very, very scarce. Falsehood will rule the day. 
And my friends, that is increasingly where we find ourselves. But as we look at the divine parental heart of God, as we see back in our study of Micah, this is message number 10. So um, we've had 10 Sunday or nine Sundays so far. Today's the 10th Sunday of looking at this wonderful little letter in the book of Micah. I believe that we are going to see God's plan. We're going to see his frustration, and we're going to see his ultimate rescue. As the perfect plant parent, he has a plan for our prosperity and goodness. How many parents plan for their children to have misery? There's maybe a very small percentage. They're very whacked. There's something really wrong with them. They're sadistic. They're, they're unhealthy. That's not the norm. Every parent wants their child to have prosperity. They want them to be fulfilled. They want them to experience good things. And how much more does a perfect heavenly father desire that for his children? We see Jesus say that in Matthew 7. He says, if you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more does your heavenly perfect father know how to give good things to those who love him? Notice the next thing, or this is just as part of our setup here. As the perfect parent, he has a wrath against the sin of his kids. How many moms and how many dads in this room have become angry with their children before because of their sin, because of their disobedience, right? Have you, as a parent, have you ever become angry at your kid? Anybody, anybody can, y'all don't sit out there like bumps on logs. Okay, help me out. I, don't, I know I don't usually do that. But I mean, if you're a parent, you understand that. And you understand it when they're little, and you understand it when they're little, not so little, and you understand it when they get bigger, and sometimes you even understand it when they're grown. That there's frustration, that there's, there's sometimes anger, there's disappointment, as we're going to see. There's, there's, as we're going to see here, there's sadness. Because this is the fallen condition in which we live, and God dealing with us as fallen people. There's much encouragement here for every one of us, even for those who do not have children. This isn't, a, this isn't a message about parenting. Just want to make sure you understand. This is a message about God and God's parenting of you. So every heart this morning can gain much here. But the last thing I'd say about this perfect parent who is God, we see that he will rescue in a way that only he can. In a way that you cannot rescue your kids, um, God will rescue us in a way that only he can. So let's remember just a little bit here from the prophecy of Micah. If you're new to us this morning, just want you to see this, this little, little section at the top. And uh, then this message is going to take a, a different form than we often do. There are three passages that are going to help us understand. So well over half of this message this morning is going to be before we even get to the Micah passage that is our main text. I want you to not be alarmed by that. You don't need to think, gee whiz, I wish I'd brought lunch because we're obviously going to go for a while. The, the beginning of this is the setup so that when we get to the main text of Micah that we're going to study, it's going to make much more sense, okay? And I, and I believe that there are some key 
um, theological things, some key doctrinal issues that you are going to learn this morning and start to get a feel for that is not only going to be kind of perhaps an aha moment for some of you with different passages of the Old Testament that you always were confused by, you never really got into, never understood certain, certain types of literature in the Old Testament. You kind of whatever that means, and you, and you would go on. Let me tell you that this morning, you're going to get some new hooks to hang things on that I believe is going to greatly increase your understanding of God's Word. So we've said it from the beginning, the prophecy of Micah has three prophecy cycles. We've already been through two of them this morning. We will begin the third prophecy cycle. Now, do you remember the two key words that describe each one of these cycles. They, they, all three of them have two key themes in them. The first one is judgment. So the first part of all three of these cycles is there is judgment. And why is there judgment? There is judgment because of the people of sin. But we see that contrary to popular opinion and contrary to popular misunderstanding, The Old Testament isn't just full of judgment. There's also what? Mercy. Very good. There's also mercy in these judgments. And as you become a student of the Bible, as you become um, one who understands how God is working and what God is proclaiming to us throughout human history, we see, yes, we need his judgment because we are in sin. And so he judges us to correct us, to show us our need for him, but then he doesn't just show us where we're wrong. He brings us to what is right, and that is mercy. Notice this and fill it in. The setting, the people of Israel are in rebellion, and they have sinned against God grievously, as we will see, sinned against God. And now we come to this third cycle, and the third cycle that we've named it is the denunciations and salvation. Do you remember denunciation? Put above the word denunciation, judgment, that, or just put J above that. And then above salvation, what do you put? M for mercy. So here we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, chapter six and seven is the God's denouncing us, God's indicting us, as we're going to see this morning, and this is the next one, God's indictment. He comes and he prosecutes a case against us, and then we see Israel replies to that, but then we ultimately see God's exaltation and his salvation. But this morning, we focus on God's indictments. Put a big circle around that one on your outline, just like you see on the screen. I also want to remind you, before we jump into this any further, notice, fill this in, notice, the judgment prophecies are intended to lead God's people to repentance. You see, if you don't, if you don't know that you're off, you don't know that you need to repent, but when God shows us that we have sinned against him, then we can come to knowing that we need to turn to him. Notice the next line there. In every cycle, these three cycles, God's mercy prevails for his people in and over his judgment. So God's working through his judgment, and his judgment is is then overwhelmed by his mercy for his true people. I hope that that's going to be true of your life. I hope that God's showing you that you're a sinner in need of him will result in you looking to him for mercy. Mercy. 
Because that's what it can do. You don't just need to go away condemned. But if you go to the ground in repentance, you go to the ground in recognizing that you need him, you can experience his mercy. And that's what we see God doing throughout history and even today. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, fill this in. God reviews 700 years of parenting rebellious Israel. Now, some of you have said, gee whiz, I've just had seven years with this kid. I just had seven years with this little rebellious rascal. Well, imagine 700, and, and this is just the slice that we see from Micah. We know that as we're going to see, we're looking at over 1,400 years that they have been rebellious when Micah writes this. But the text that we're going to see on the back side of the page is just covering 700 years. In just a moment, we're going to see even before that as we look at some other passages. And that's what leads us to this next one. Micah 6, 1 through 5 is much better understood if studied alongside three other passages. And this is where you're going to be helped this morning. There's a Deuteronomy passage that comes way before Micah. When we go back to Deuteronomy, we're looking at God working through Moses over 700 years before Micah. Okay, are you getting that? For those of you who, you're, kinda, you're here, I know some of you that's totally new to you, but, but you know, we, we go from, from Adam and we go to Noah, we go to Abraham, we go to, we, we go to Moses, we come on through to David, and then we go to the prophets. So there's a timeline here that can make sense as you, start to, as you start to study it. But here we're seeing that as we go back to Deuteronomy, we see that what Micah writes to us really is founded in much of the same thought and much of the same work of God as we see in Deuteronomy 32. So this morning, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to go to your table of contents in your Bible. I'm going to ask you to go to Deuteronomy. I haven't printed it for you. Um, but I want you to go and find where Deuteronomy is back in the table of contents, and then I'm going to ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And we're going, we're going to look at some things here, so some of you are getting there for a moment. I want, to, I want to give you the background of Deuteronomy 32, and then we're going to skip through that chapter a little bit, so you're going to really need it open. This is another reason why I encourage you the Bible that you carry here to our worship services, I do want to encourage you to carry an ESV or an NASV. Those are very, very similar translations. Because when we read long passages of Scripture that I have it printed, it won't be as confusing to you. If you have one of the other translations, it's very possible for you to go, oh, I wonder why they translated it that way, or that doesn't, mine doesn't say the same thing, or whatever, different translations. This is a good reason to go to the bookstore after the service and get an ESV. If you, if you don't have one. Um, but I, I just want to encourage you as we blast through this, I believe that you're going to see how God fits this together. But these three passages, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 50, and then Isaiah 1, 1 through 2, will help us greatly understand our Micah passage. So this is, Deuteronomy 32, is the song of Moses. This is the song of Moses, and it's given by God. People could falsely assume that, oh, this is just, Moses made this up. But the picture is all of Scripture is inspired by God, and including uh, 
God's words through him. And much like um, as, we, as we just look at other places of Scripture where God was working through people. So the song of Moses is given by God to Moses, and then underline that, at the end of his life. Now, let me just remind you what God, who, what God used Moses to do. God was used, excuse me, Moses used God to go and send him to Pharaoh where God's people were in bondage. They were in what country in bondage? In Egypt, right? And so they're in bondage. They they started off good there through Joseph, but 400 years later, they're slaves. And they're not allowed to worship. They're mistreated. The Egyptians are lording over them. And the cries of the people go up to God, and God hears the cry of his people. And so God is going to send one to lead them out of that mess. And he sends Moses. Now, Mo, 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 Moses, he, he, he had a speech problem. He said he stuttered. So he wasn't even the quintessential leader that is going to go and lead people out. God uses very often our weaknesses to show his strength, right? And so God sends Moses to go deal with Pharaoh. And if you go back and read the whole story, it's amazing how he planned it from the beginning of Moses' birth, has him there growing up in Egypt, and then Moses escapes, leaves, comes back for a purpose. And then we see how God uses Moses to lead them through the wilderness. But because of even Moses' own sinful heart, when he sinned against God, he did something one day that God said, okay, buddy, you're not going into the promised land. And so when it was time to go into the promised land, God takes Moses up to the top of a mountain. He looks out over into the promised land, and God takes him to heaven. But before that happens, we see this song of Moses. So notice on your outline here, the song of Moses is an, it's an overview of the history of God's people. And so as you, as you begin to read through places like Deuteronomy 32, and you think back through what you know about God delivering them, it all starts to make sense. So to see the first box there. It's their rise from nothing. I mean, they, God is coming and he's working through this and we see that God takes a people who's not a people and he makes them a people and they have no nation and he, he's going to give them a nation. He, they have no resources and he's going to give them resources. And then notice this as well. We see that even after he does that, there's the demise, their demise, the people's demise from rebellion. So it's so sad that they've been given all this, but they rebel against God and it destroys them. And then look at the third box, and then we see their resurrection from death by God's what? Mercy. Now, this encapsulates often just the whole story of redemption, that God makes a people, they rebel against him, but God comes back and saves a people in their sin. This is how we learn about the character of who God is in the grand scheme 
of all of existence. We, we come and we learn of him in this. Notice the next bullet point there. It is from the perspective of divine parental love. Deuteronomy 32 is from the perspective of divine parental love. And we're going to see that here as we go over in 32 verses 1 through 6. And then in verse 10 and 11, the, the little phrase, the apple of his eye, is even used. And that's a phrase that is that is often um, seen as, as a father or as a mother, looks at a child, and there's such joy in that, there's such hope in that. We see that that is the f- language that is used here. Notice the next bullet point. It is filled with frustration and sadness. We're going to see that. It's filled with frustration and sadness. Why? Because God had in mind nothing less than recreation for them. Now, not recreation. We've often taken that. Recreation, if you break it down, it means to recreate, to rebuild. And God is going to give these people a recreation. But what happens instead, as God takes them out of Egypt, even as God is over and over again providing for them and making promises for them, what happens is they go eventually into the promised land. We see that there's idolatrous wealth. They idolize the wealth that God has given to them. And we not only see that they're making idols out of that wealth, but notice the next thing, apostasy. Now, some of you have never written down the word apostasy. Today's your first day. Go ahead and write it down. A-P-O-S-T-A-S-Y. Apostasy. What does apostasy mean? It means they they left faith in and worship of. You need to put an of in there between worship and God. They left faith in and worship of God. And it's not only the Israelites that are good at doing that, but there are people here in this church who have left the faith. There are people who grew up here. There are people who have heard the gospel, people who seemingly responded to the gospel. It appeared that they'd come to an acceptance of God's grace and mercy, and then they wandered away, and they become apostate and eventually say, I don't believe that. I don't want that. I throw that off of my life. This is a very real danger, and this is what eventually reveals whether or not you're really gods or not. We believe in a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, that that those who are truly gods will remain gods. Very key issue that is here, very heartbreaking issue that is here. Some in God's people would leave and say, I am no longer God's people. Some would be carried away in deception. Look at the next part there. God's judgment God's judgment for breaking their covenant with him. And so we we see that in Deuteronomy 32. But interestingly enough, judgment is not where it ends. Can you say amen to that? What we see, notice the next one here, it ends with a window into God's heart. We begin to see that God made a covenant people to save his people And he will keep that covenant even when they don't. This is the mercy of God. God keeps his covenant. He said, I will save you. I will make you a people. He said it to Abraham. He said it to Moses. He makes a covenant with us. 
And he keeps that covenant even when we don't. And so God, how does he do that? How does he do it? He keeps it. How does God keep that covenant? He does it. He himself will make atonement for his people. This is the gospel. They cannot atone for their own sins. And so God, you say, what does the word atone mean? It means to come and make right, to, to satisfy the wrath of God, to come and make right the sins of his people. God doesn't say that sin is right. He makes the sinner right um, before him, and that is just his incredible grace. Now, you have your, your, Psalm, your Deuteronomy 32 open. Let's notice a few of these things, the rise, the demise, the, uh, the picture here of God's work. Look at verse 1. In Deuteronomy 32, and I'm going to read fast, and so I want to encourage you to have your brain in gear. Go ahead and put it down, shift a little bit here. Make sure you're ready to roll with this. Look at verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Rain is a good thing in the Old Testament, so just so you know, it's good. Let gentle rain upon the tent, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Look at verse 4. The rock. His work is perfect and all his ways are just. Circle those words at the beginning in verse 4. The rock. Four times Moses calls God the rock, capital R. And look what it says. The rock, his work is perfect and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Right? Sin out there. Transgression. Without sin. Just and upright is he. Verse 4 is one of the banner verses for my life. When I've wondered what God is doing, when I've been confused at seeing God and how he works, I have to go back very often to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 because it tells me that his work is perfect and all his ways are justice. Notice the next part. Look at verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished they are crooked and twisted are a crooked and twisted generation do you thus repay the lord you foolish and senseless people do you see that verse six he's asking is this how you treat the lord after he's done what he's done for you is not he your what does it say father who created you who made you and established you Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. You remember what we just said? 1,400 years going back from Micah? That, that all these generations? Look what it says in verse 7. Ask your father. He's saying, and he will show you, you elders, your elders, and they will tell you. He's saying, just, just go ask your dad if God hasn't been faithful. Verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's person, portion in his people, Jacob, has allotted his, Jacob, his allotted heritage. The picture is that God is the one who gives you your inheritance. Why? Because you are his child. Look at verse 10. He found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. 
He kept him as what? The apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them. Have you ever seen that before? It's interesting the Bible catches things that happen in nature so often. Have you ever seen what an eagle does? He, he kind of gets a, an eaglet ready to fly and gets him ready and gets him ready and gets him ready. And then what does the eagle do? He kicks that thing out of the nest and that eagle is, eaglet's, you know, he's, he's figuring it out as fast as he can, but he doesn't have it yet. And just before he hits the ground, what does the eagle do, the parent eagle do? Comes down and swoops under and rescues. Amazing. And that's what the picture is here, that God, this perfect parent, is taking us in all of our frailty and all of our, our inability and he's watching over us and spread, he's spreading out his wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. That means feathers. Look at verse 12. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Verse 13. He made him ride on the high places of the land and he ate the produce of the field and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. God, God is coming and he's providing everything they need. Not only in the wilderness, but when they get eventually to the promised man, that's what he's going to do. Look at verse 14. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. You drank foamy wine made from the blood of the grape, made from the, the juice of the grape. This was, this was rich. God took care. Look at verse 15. How does it begin in verse 15? But, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Verse 16. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. You see, so, so they have all these blessings, and they, they anger God by leaving the worship of God and going to other gods. Look at verse 16. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. I mean, they're offering sacrifices to Baal. They're offering sacrifices to all kinds of other false gods that are around them in the most perverse ways. And Look at verse 17. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that they had come, that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Look at verse 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Verse 19, the Lord saw it and spurred them, be, spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. So he's saying that 
I will, I will let the other nations around them come and take their land. I will let the other nations around them come and show them. And then the people will cry out, where is God? Why are these coming? Well, I thought we were the people of God. And, now, and God says, oh, but you're not acting like my people. Verse, verse 22. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the flesh and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. It goes on to describe a great... Um, a great judgment that God would bring upon his people. And that's what he does. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens to turn them back to himself. So we, we begin to see this heart of God that, that acts like a, a wise and noble father who is a wise and noble father, perfect in his wisdom, and yet a people who are prone to leave him. And as we look through the history of Israel, we see that this happens over and over and over again. But I, I want us to not only look and see Deuteronomy 32, let's move to Psalm 50. And so take your Bible and go, just open there in the middle of your Bible. You'll probably hit the book of Psalms. And as you go to the book of Psalms, I want to encourage you to look at Psalm 50. Now, Psalm 50 is a little bit different psalm than most psalms. Psalm 50 is a call directly from God to his people. Usually it's through an intermediary. Usually it's through one of the other leaders of Israel. But here we see Psalm 50 is God speaking directly. To his people. Notice here Psalm 50 in the first bullet point there. It is a rejection of their constant sacrifices. This is so important. It's a rejection of their constant sacrifices made with, fill it in, wrong motives. We're going to see that in just a second. It is a rejection of their ungodly behavior. Fill that in. Third bullet point, it's a rejection of sacrifices, listen to this, for appeasement. We're going to say, what do we mean by that? I'll show you in just a minute. And it calls for holy living in sacrifices made with true gratitude instead. Now, I, I want to unpack this, and it's going to make sense as we read it. Look at Psalm 50. So, in those bullet points, rejection of their constant sacrifice with wrong motives, rejection of their ungodly behavior, rejection of sacrifices for appeasement. Now, look at Psalm 50 with me in verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfect perfection of beauty, God shines forth. No one is like this. A verse, two verses like that remind us he is the high king of heaven. He is the perfect and holy one. He, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, it, it doesn't matter whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or even Winston Churchill or, or you know, any world leader compares nothing to the high king of heaven. This is the picture here. Look at verse three, verse 3. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. It's good that he judges his people. Look at verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. 
The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Look at verse 7. Hear, O people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify, underline it, against you. I am God, your God. Verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold, for every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the, of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. What he's saying is, you offer me constant, constant sacrifices of these animals as if I need them. And you do it for the wrong reasons. Now he's going to show his independence from them, his, his rulership over them. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in all its fullness is mine, are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice. Here it is, verse 14, huge, here it is. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. This is the problem. They're not offering sacrifices of gratitude in true worship. Here's what they were doing. They'd go sin against God, know it was wrong, and they would go and bring their bull or they'd bring their goat or they'd bring their dove. They, they would bring various sacrifices depending on the ceremonial law, and they would come and they would bring those sacrifices as if to say, well, I'm going to go sin, but I'm going to do this and God will be appeased. Now, before we're too hard on them, cannot sometimes Christians who do not understand the way God really works do the same thing? Can we say, oh, well, I went to church. During COVID, I went to church. I served in the nursery. Boy, I sold that thing and I gave a tithe. I mean, my goodness, I could have gone on a fancy vacation with that tithe. I did these things. Surely God is pleased with me. There's some people that live their lives doing things that they think are appeasing God. They've never come to the understanding that He alone is their hope, that He alone, it's not their gifts, it's not their sacrifice, it's not their actions of time and effort and money and talent that God calls us to live before Him in faith and to live in gratitude for who he is and what he does. So look at verse 14. Oh, to offer, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And look what it says. And perform your vows to the Most High. That means be faithful to living for him. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So even as you're faithful to him, you're still going to have days of trouble the most faithful of all will have days. Job, there was no one like Job, and, and we see the trouble that Job had, and it was all for God's grace and work to be shown. Look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes? How can you claim, he's saying, how can you claim my way of life and my blessings, or take my covenant on your lips? Look at verse 17, for you hate discipline. 
and you cast my words behind you. Dear Christian, do not cast God's words behind you. Do not ignore what he said. Take his word and by discipline and by correction, allow it to be upon your heart. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil, your tongue frames deceit. Verse 20, this is talking about dissension among brothers. You sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son, that's your brother, you're slandering your own brother. These things you have done, and I have kept silent, you thought that I was one like you. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Look at verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there is none to deliver. Verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly. So do you see this? It's gratitude and obedience. It's gratitude and obedience. He is any sacrifice that he's offering up, it is in gratitude that God would forgive. It's not saying, hey, here's my sacrifice so I can sin. Ooh. Instead, it's, it's recognizing that God is the God of salvation. God calls me his own. God says that he forgives. And so my sacrifice is not to appease him, but my sacrifice is to thank him for what he has promised. Now, that's a totally different way to live the Christian life. All that we do, all of our work, all of our prayer, all of our disciplines, even our giving, all of our service, that this is a reasonable sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. And then look at verse 23 at the end. It says, to one who orders his way rightly. This is obedience. This is living after God. And look what it says, I will show the salvation of God. These are the saved. These are the people who are truly saved. So let's go back to your outline and let's look and see. Again, look at Psalm 50. It's a rejection of their constant sacrifices made with wrong motives. It's a rejection of their ungodly behavior. It's a rejection of the sacrifices of appeasement. You can go back and study those this, this, uh, this afternoon. It calls for holy living and sacrifices to be made with true gratitude. Why? Fill it in. Because God's people know that salvation only comes from God. They can't save themselves. They're not trying to. They're recognizing that salvation comes from God, and it's a gift. And I live my life in faithful obedience and gratitude. Friends, this is, this is the difference between cultural Christianity and biblical Christianity. And some of you have grown up, like many of us, in cultural Christianity. And subtly, in the back of your mind, you thought, well, God's just calling you to be good, and if your good will outweigh your bad, then he'll forgive you. My friends, that is you idolizing your behavior. That is called self-righteousness. And the Bible says very clearly that we have no self-righteousness. The righteousness that we hope to have is found only in Christ. As he gives to us, he imputes to us, he presses upon us his righteousness only by faith 
not by works. This is the true gospel. It was the true gospel for the believers of the Old Testament, and it's the true gospel for the believers of the New Testament. This is, this is the way of God. It's so often so misunderstood. Now, the last verse that I want us to see here, you know, we went from a long Deuteronomy 32 to a shorter Psalm 50, and now we just come to two verses, just two verses. Isaiah verses 1 and 2 help us understand this passage from, my, from Micah, and notice there this next headline, it says, Isaiah and Micah have similar messages at the same time. Now, remember with me, Micah was a prophet and Isaiah was a prophet. And they were prophets, their, their, their prophecy time, their lives overlapped in the same period. And so their lives overlapped, and Isaiah was in Jerusalem, the big city priest or a prophet, and Micah was out in the countryside. Both, both had very important messages, and what we see here is both had very similar messages. Notice this, these are the first two verses of the whole book of Isaiah. The vision of, of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days, and here's the king, so, so we know when he lived, we know when he prophesied, when he was preaching was during the days of King Uzziah, King Jothan, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So that's how we know that they overlap with, with Micah, because Micah had the same um, are very, very close to the same uh, time period. Look at verse 2. Here's how he begins. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, circle it, children have I reared and brought up. But what does it say? Okay, that's very weak. Look at the end of verse 2. You're going to finish it. Children have I reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. This is the perfect God parent of all. I mean, this is the parental God who gives to his people, makes the people, gives to them, and then they rebel against him. This is the message of Isaiah. This is the message of Micah, but it's not only that we are left in our rebellion. We will see over the next few weeks the beauty of what all God does. Now, go to the next page. Flip the page over and let's look at the text. I told you that we would spend time setting it up. From Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 50, and Isaiah 32. Now look at this. And I, and I can tell you that God has been working in my heart about this. When I studied this a few weeks ago in preparation for this, my initial thought before I read anything that anybody had written about this passage was, wow, that's the heart of a parent. That is the heart of God as parent. I know how that feels. And I raised two good girls. Two girls have been very sweet, and very kind, very good in so many ways. They're not perfect, just like anyone else. But boy, nevertheless, my heart has felt these things. And I cannot imagine how much I made my own mother and father feel this way. Mother is at home saying, amen, you tell them, Andrew. Look what Micah chapter 6, verse 1 through 5 says. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case. Do you see that? Plead your case. This is legal terms. This is why we call it an indictment. 
Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. That means He's going to come against them. Look at verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Baor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Let me help you understand this a little bit. Observations from the text, first part, verses 1 and 2. God prosecutes his case against his unfaithful people. And you say, why does he, why does he say, plead your case? Look at verse 1. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Can mountains hear? Can... Here's the idea. The case is being brought in the court God is bringing the case against them, and God is saying, you mountains, where all this stuff happened for the last 700 years, let the mountains speak. They were here. They saw what you did. They saw all the times that you were unfaithful. The mountains in the high places when you worshiped other gods. The valleys when you did things that you thought were in secret. All of the things that you took as blessings from God and turned for your own selfishness. All of the injustice in this nation, all the things that he told you not to do, how to treat your fellow man, how to treat the poor, how to treat those who were not like you, you ignored them. And the mountains can tell story after story after story of generation after generation of your sin. Do you get it now? Look at verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Aride, please your, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. He's saying is you, you can tell them, but the mountains are going to speak back. Look at verse, verse 2. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, for you enduring foundations of the, earth, of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So the Lord is perfect to bring a charge against us because he knows and this is, a, this is a way of saying that. You know, so often when indictment is made by the Lord, sometimes we defend ourselves. Sometimes we make an excuse. We think we can hide something from God. He says, man, what are you talking about? I know it all. I see it all. That's what's being said here. Don't defend yourself. Don't act like you didn't do it. How many times have you gone to a, one of your kids and you go, okay, kids, uh, anybody, you want to tell me what happened here? And they go, I don't know anything. I didn't do that. And you're, gonna, and you're just sitting there thinking, are you really going to do that right now? Are you really going to deny this? Do you see the, the parental heart of God here? He's saying, do you really think you can get away with that? You think I don't know? Why do we do that? You know, you know, God's true people, when He convicts us of sin, we're not to make an excuse. We're not to ignore His voice. 
You know, sometimes, I, I remember one time, Dad told me to slow down while I was driving. I won't tell you the whole story, but I ignored him, and when we got home, I continued to ignore him, and I just said, why don't you calm down? I promise that was the last time I ever told my dad to calm down. Imagine Clell's frustration with Andrew, the disrespect, ignoring him. Leave me alone. Not only is that wrong for a child on earth to do to a father or a mother on earth to do, but when God's people do that to him, we may think that we're getting away with it, as it said in Psalm 50, I was silent so you thought I was like you, but a wise man listens to the words of God. And hears them and takes note of them and reacts rightly to them. Notice this, verse 1 and 2 underneath that. The mountains know the truth about 700 years of covenant breaking since Moses. That's what Micah is saying. You've been breaking God's covenant. You've been breaking his law. You've not obeyed him. In verse 3, look at verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I to do, or what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I mean, God is, I mean, do you hear the sarcasm here? As a parent, have you ever been sarcastic towards your kid? Have you ever maybe wanted to be that way? I mean, I, I have. You ask rhetorical questions. They go to answer. You, know, you, you ask your kid, how have I wearied you? And they start to answer you. And you're like, oh, my goodness, Lord, help me <laughs> control myself. They don't realize what all you did. You don't realize what all you gave. They, their, their adolescent mind forgets it. They don't know what you went through. They don't know the sacrifice you made. And so just let, for those of you that are parents, just let how you understand the way that that has felt. For some of you, I understand it was 50 years ago you were raising your kids that are older, but you can, you can remember some things you don't forget. And, and you, you can remember some of those frustrations Well. May we apply that to our relationship to God and recognize that very often we treat Him the same way. Can you look at verse 3? Can you hear the frustration? Fill that in. God's parental heart of frustration and sadness comes through. That's what we see in verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. We, we, we see this sadness that is here. Verse 4, we just read it. God delivered them from Pharaoh in Egypt. He makes a people that wasn't a people, and he makes them into a people. You can go read the book of Exodus to remember all of God's patience with them, all of their rebellion. Look at verse 5. Oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam son of Baor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What is this all about? You need to do a little bit of reading this afternoon. Right out there to the side, homework. This is good homework for you to do. This is better than... The football game, better than TV, better than anything else. I guarantee you it will help you, may save your soul. Look at verse 5. 
God brought them into the land, into the promised land, and established them generously. And that's what we see here. God delivers them, fill it in, God delivers them repeatedly, and the people sin against him repeatedly. I mean, God rescues them, sends them on their way. An evil king is plotting against them. God wipes out the evil king plotting against them, and then they go off and sin again. Right in the face of his salvation, right in the face of his patience, right in the face of even his forgiveness. Hmm. Look at the last one. It's important for us to see in these that God would rather bless than curse. God would so rather bless you than chastise you. And he would so rather bless a people than to curse a people. Don't miss the end of verse 5. Look what it says. And all of this occurs that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God's merciful, gracious, holy acts of redeeming his people. Well, how do we, I mean, just look at that little box on the page. This is Micah's statement of an indictment. We, this, you know, this isn't just to Israel, but if you've been listening and if you have an open heart, you're recognizing that this represents you too. I recognize that it represents me that my heart continually needs to turn back to God. My heart is continually prone to wander from God. It's prone to go and leave the God I love. It's prone to go and sin. It's prone to just make much of this present moment and not all of eternity that God has said is so valuable. We can become enamored with the things of this life, the pleasures of this life, the material possessions, the security, or maybe even the people of this life, and ignore God. And God is saying, no, come and live in thanksgiving to me. Come and let your sacrifices of obedience be out of gratitude because I have saved you. Live in gratitude, not in appeasement. Number one, application to our lives. God is righteous and just in His judgment against His people's sin. From Deuteronomy 32, what does it say in verse 4? Ascribe greatness to our God the rock whose work is perfect and all of His ways are justice. He is right when He judges us. Never wrong. Satan wants you to think he's wrong. Satan wants you to think he's unjust. Satan always says, but why did God do that? Why would he, does he really say that? I mean, Satan always is questioning God's justice and goodness. Wants you to question it. Here we see again that the Lord is right. Up there in verse 1 and 2, the mountains could speak, the mountains could tell. Look at number 2. Not only is God righteous and just, but God is righteous and gracious He's gracious in his deliverance of his people from their situation and their sin. You see, sometimes it's not just delivering them from their sin. Sometimes it's, you know, they're doing the right thing, but man, an evil king is coming after them. And they need his deliverance. Sometimes it's, it's just in your circumstance of living in a fallen world that God says, let me be the one who rescues 
you. And he does this in his grace. So justice and grace, look at number three, God's people can cling to his justice. Don't, Don't run away from his justice, cling to his justice and mercy that is poured out through Jesus Christ. You say, okay, what what do you mean exactly by that? Here's the picture. Jesus took the justice of God upon Himself. Jesus took the wrath of God upon Himself on Calvary. The sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God, never a sin, never an imperfection, the perfect Lamb of God nailed to the cross for all of our sins. So God's justice is poured out on Jesus, and God's mercy is poured out through Jesus to us. This is the salvation of God. God extends his mercy to us through the sacrifice of Christ. This is why this church makes such a big deal of that cross and all that it stands for. This is why you need to come to grips with what Jesus did on the cross. And you will either receive that as lordship over your life and what he has done and find all of your hope in that, or you will continue to run in your own good works. Notice the last one here, verse 4. For those who have come to Christ, God's people can live in grateful obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You can't do this upon yourself. You can't be good. You can't be good enough for God. You can't overcome these things. Yes, discipline plays into our lives. We saw that already. These are the people who hate discipline or those who are the godless. But what we begin to see here is that true grateful obedience is only possible through God's Holy Spirit living in you and in breathing in you, causing you to obey. Now, I know some of you are packing up, but I want you to see this. This last point is found in Galatians 2.20 in such a beautiful way. Look what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. That's the sacrifice, the right sacrifice. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By faith in the Son of God, not in myself, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at that passage. Look at the screen just right in front of you. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? But Christ who lives in me. Friends, some of you have been thinking, how am I ever going to be obedient to God with all that he calls me to do? You're trying to do it in your own strength. Let me just say to you, run to the cross of Christ. Let him forgive you of your sin. Come and let him empower you. And as he empowers you, you can obey. You can obey in gratitude, not trying to appease God, but simply coming before him and living in gratefulness for all that his salvation has brought you. Would you stand with me for prayer? Lord, I pray that we would see the big picture this morning, the big picture of the Old Testament, the big picture of Deuteronomy, the big picture that the Psalms rings out, the big picture of Isaiah. And Lord, this passage of Micah. 
I pray that we would hear from you, Lord, that you're a holy God who loves us and that you call us to live as grateful children, not insatiable children that are always complaining, always wanting something else. Lord, as we think about our own children and their stages of growth, for those that are already grown, Lord, we can look back and we can identify various stages of when they just couldn't help themselves in being selfish. Grab things, smash things, scream and yell when they didn't get their way, can't control themselves, no discipline, can't obey hardly at all because they can't seem to pull it together. Lord, are we stuck in those positions are we toddlers in Jesus? Have we grown up and learned to obey, learned to see the big picture and to appreciate? Lord, I pray that we would be mature followers of Jesus. I pray that we would see what you have done for us and be glad. I pray that we would learn to really trust you that you will see us through, that you'll see us all the way safely home to be with you. Lord, I pray that we would obey with grateful hearts and not run around in fear. Lord, I pray for this. I pray that you would mature our church body together. I pray that even tonight as we gather as covenant members, I pray that we would just have a spirit, Lord, of allowing you to build our church together in love and in grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you sing together? What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts, not their sum. We sing this great truth.